what's most fascinating from the research though, is that everyone was highly, highly motivated by the statement. Uh, they want the best pet healthcare for their pet. Like they want the best for their pet. So everyone felt like they could say my way of doing it gets the best care for my pet, mm -hmm. but their way of doing it is three different ways. So I think right. us as pet healthcare teams, we may have some difficulty saying that the person motivated by convenience or cost is providing the best care to their pet, but pet families don't see it that way. They mm -hmm. really don't. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. My training mirrors what yours has been, Jules and Emily, and, and, and I'm amazed at that because I'm so much older than you. I, I would have thought that the training would have changed by then. Older than pizza, who knew? I mean, again, yeah. not to that, <laughs> just any opportunity. I did my internship residency at Mississippi State. Three largest cities in Mississippi are New Orleans, Memphis, and Birmingham at the time. There were no large cities in Mississippi. So the whole state was rural essentially. I remember when I was recruited to Mississippi State, I was told it was going to be a rotating internship. I didn't know that that was by necessity, you know, that I could not afford to specialize as in an internship because mm -hmm. of all of the demands of the clientele that was coming there. And most of the boarded veterinarians were at, in Mississippi were at Mississippi State at that time. I probably did 30 to 40 back during my internship. And I didn't see it as a specialty novelty. I did a lot of uh, endoscopy then that, and I didn't see it as a specialty issue. And I still don't. There are levels of technological expertise that should be rewarded and should be recognized. But it brings into the problem, the, the, the question of our regulatory obstacles. The fact that the standard of care essentially is determined by the veterinary medical board of any given state. Again, going back to uh, what Dr. Block said, it's determined by the people who are reviewing cases for the board, right? I mean, it's right. The, 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 the spectrum of care is a group of veterinarians who, in your state, who decide whether that what you did meets the standard of care. So, so bad practice is not the standard of care. Just because you didn't treat well or, you, or there's malpractice, that's not standard of care. Like you still have to practice within you know, having the best interest of the pet, you know, within the confines of the financial and medical constraints that you have. I think that the, the standard of care is determined based on that state board inquiry. But I, I think the goal for us is partly to have more, more fruitful conversations with state boards, with, you know, PLIT, with other organizations. And I, and I know these are hard things to talk about because nobody wants to say hard and fast, this is the, you know, this is what the regulator says. And that's what I really liked about what Dr. Block says. So like, you don't know what it is until you're in front of them. Like, but literally you, you, I think being courageous in how you practice medicine, I know that nobody wants their courage to, to, to have them end up in front of a state board, but I think the more conversations we can have that are fruitful. And, and frankly, if there are state board decisions that are bad as it comes to a spectrum of care, having those bigger conversations and starting to challenge some of those rulings and, and bring them up, you know, into the sunshine. I believe veterinarians are uniquely positioned to make critical life death decisions because they have to do it every day and they have to do it with the idea of the limitations 
of finances as well as technology and the application of those technologies in veterinary medicine. So since you all work for a great insurance company, the question is, you know, everybody keeps complaining that in human medicine, we don't want to make the hard decision sometimes when it comes to quality of life issues Mm -hmm. because of the promise of technology and the undergirdment of a third-party payer. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I get very excited. Emily knows more about this stuff than I do, but I get very excited. And so I, I want to give her a chance to jump in on the regulatory side, because I know she has a, a lot of thoughts on that. Go ahead. Well, I do want to come back, Phil, to providing a range of, of pet protection options. I think that's a really great question. Uh, like, how do, how, do we, how do we look at, essentially, I hear you asking, mm-hmm. how do we rectify mm-hmm. pet insurance and the fact that more care is afforded when a pet is insured with a spectrum of care. So I want to come back to that first. We haven't explicitly said it so far, so it it bears verbalizing that practicing across a spectrum of care doesn't mean you're always choosing basic or advanced. So in our college program with the BBMA in the fall semester, we designed a two-hour communications workshop that includes some of our, our work with Mind Genomics, in which we recommend a communication method, kind of a, a three to one process. And so the three is choose three treatment options for most people. More than that is a lot to take in. Choose three treatment options that are appropriate for the pet that you are seeing across the spectrum of care from basic to advanced. Spectrum of care includes advanced options. And it is important that people know that they have advanced options that they know they can go see a specialist for that back surgery, or they know that they can, you know, supportively manage their pet that's unable to walk to see if their pet may improve with pain medications and some rehab at home. So offering those three options first, then the two is have at least two check-ins with a pet family. So really the biggest difference of what we're advocating for, and it brings from a great JAVMA paper that was Dr. Carolyn Brown at the ASPCA was the lead author for just a couple sentences in there about the incredible, talk about courageous conversation, incredible cognitive bias that is present when we as doctors present options that the first option presented is the most expensive one is well, if it's the most expensive one, no matter what it is, whatever comes out of our mouth first, there are multiple different biases that have been identified, mostly studied in human medicine, either human patient or the pet family extrapolated to vet med is going to think that that is the best option because Uh. you're presenting it first. Whether it is the best one or not, they're going to read from us that it is best. And so we advocate for, we can talk a little bit about our research, about trying to figure out what is the best fit for pet families, not just based on their finances. We advocate for choosing the option based on everything you've discussed with them already about their situation of that, of those three basic to advanced treatment options, which one is best for them and presenting that first not the most expensive, which is how pretty universally most of us are taught to present treatment options right now. And checking in with them multiple times. We're not trying to make assumptions. Is this the right option for you? Make sure they understand what other options exist. And then to the conversation we've had about legal and regulatory pieces, that conversation needs to be documented. (laughs) That, That you have discussed all of the options with them. And then the one is, you know, your medical record does need to exist. Isn't there another approach, Emily? 
the approach you're recommending I find acceptable, except for one thing, and that is you're still resting on the potential bias of the caregiver, of the veterinarian. Excellent observation. And, and so I would prefer to approach it by saying, you know, I'm going to give you three options, and I'm going to give you what I think is the best option first or last to avoid that bias by recognizing that they may have that bias and facing it up front in your language. I, I, I don't know if this is three card Monty. I don't know if that if that works that way. So the, no, I'm just asking the question. <laughs> no, I, we we did some research. So this is this is exactly where this came from. Was that and going back to my point earlier around like we we do a lot of research around people who are already buying veterinary services. Right. Um, what we wanted to do was we partnered with with Ken Rotano and his team at Mind Genomics to basically say how do we get a better understanding of the experience that pet families want when they come into a veterinary clinic, and so creating this range of experiences that they would score and they were groups it wasn't just the thing of like hey i'd like to be greeted by my pet's first name or whatever like you had to see those in three or four other statements and that way you you can do the the statistical regression on how did people react to some of these these messages we put out there to your point that's exactly what we did next year we will have a tool in in place that will do some of the things yeah with the the goal of essentially trying to decide trying to discover what are the subconscious drivers behind the level of vet health care, a particular pet family at a particular time? Let's be fair, because everyone yes. has different goals throughout yes. their lives and throughout a particular pet's life, um, the level of care that they are seeking. And so we developed messages and tested them, as Jules mentioned, that would, would help us to uncover what level of vet health care they were looking for and what kind of messaging they were looking for as well. And I think ultimately people were uh, fell into one of three categories and very importantly those three categories were almost perfectly equal with relation to age gender race and ethnicity educational background household income there's some very slight variation between them but it's almost a perfect breakdown of one third one third one third one of the groupings um, is a little bit more common in the general population. It was a closer to 40% than one third, but it, that part I think is really important. The, the demographics, mm -hmm. there, there's no amount of demographics besides being biased. Um, it's just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> to, yeah. you, you would be incorrect to assume by looking at someone, what they may, what level of care and what interaction with us people want. The, the three main categories, people ended up being motivated by convenience is one of them, which we may imagine. I think many of us can identify that if we're really busy. Um, sometimes that really busy might be um, multiple kids and many things that you're juggling at home. And sometimes that might be someone like me that travels a lot for work. Who knows? I think I'd probably fit into that category pretty frequently. Most of us expect one of the categories to be highly motivated by cost. That's one we all expected to find. One that we didn't necessarily expect to find goes back to that providing multiple treatment options that, you know, that three, two, one communication method is that one group is highly motivated by optionality. They want to know what their options are. What I find really interesting about that group is that they were likely to choose intermediate to advanced level care. So they might, they might choose that most expensive option, but if they didn't, hear what all of their options were, they were likely to get pretty upset about that and trust be broken if they had to Google and find or talk to a friend and find out that they had options that we didn't present to them as vet healthcare team. So 
all of those three, I think they make sense to me. I feel like I, I look for them now when I'm talking to pet families and they, they make sense to me clinically. One of the things I think was most fascinating from the research though, is that everyone was highly, highly motivated by the statement. Um, they want the best pet healthcare for their pet. Like they want the best for their pet. So everyone felt like they could say my way of doing it gets the best care for my pet, mm -hmm. but their way of doing it is three different ways. So I think right. us as vet healthcare teams, we may have some difficulty saying that the person motivated by convenience or cost is providing the best care to their pet, but pet families don't see it that way. They mm -hmm. really don't. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the interesting thing, Emily, and I think your research is freaking amazing and spot on, but how do we convince the caregivers to understand that information? Because you're out of school 10 years? A little less. Okay. Almost seven. Almost seven years. How much defensive medicine did you practice when you first got out of school? Because that's what you were educated on in many ways. And if you're working for a doctor who's ever dealt with issues, we, we practice a lot more defensive medicine in 2022 than we've ever done before. And so we tend to err on the side of protecting ourselves, maybe to the detriment of the patient. How do we move from a doctor-centric business model, which is where we sit, to a client-centric business model delivered by team-based healthcare? Because really, if we can get the team to communicate a lot of this, it would be wonderful as well. So this concept of what the pet owner wants and what the veterinarian wants to deliver have a grand canyon in between the two of them. I don't think the veterinarian doesn't want to deliver it. I just think that things have changed right. while the veterinarian was in business. and Or, or in school. Yeah, or in school. Or, or in school, right. Yeah. But your original question is, what kind of language are we going to develop so that we can convince the veterinarian? Well, that's the hard that part. The because th this is a profession that is not easy to change. And yes, I mean, how do we do that? But we also have to, you're giving this communication to the veterinary students. Are they getting mixed messages then from the university as well because of this concept of defensive medicine in practicing veterinary medicine? So it becomes an interesting messaging, doesn't it, Emily, when you're trying to teach this level of communication and they're getting a little bit different communication maybe from some of the clinicians that are that they're being educated by. This is no different than the change that universities had to go through with terminal surgeries. Yes, there will be a discordant environment where even surgeons who were supervising terminal surgeries didn't want to deliver it, but we hadn't yet figured out a better model to train and be ethically blissful at the same time. So it again, progress is not linear and it's not instantaneous. And so yes, th there are going to be mixed messages. And even when we solve this, there will be mixed messages in some other area as we continue to improve. Yeah, and by the time we solve it, there'll be another message we have to come up with as well, which is the way things should be as we move forward. I love this, this focus on communication though. There's an area that needs to be really a greater focus at all levels within the profession. There's very poor communication within the, the veterinary hospital. There is very poor communication even within the associations. And, and I think this goes back to the fact that we just really aren't all singing from the same page of the hymnal. 
goes back to some things that Jules and I and Emily have talked about externally, and you and I as well, Phil, that, that we have so many silos that don't cross-communicate. And really, we need, we need to start to bridge those silos. And that includes the state boards, and it includes the colleges, and it includes the associations, and it includes the technicians, and it includes industry, because we all have the, hopefully have the same common goal. But we don't always sing it the same way. So the, the last six months of, of this year, I think we've done seven or eight conferences. Five national conferences, plus all of the vet schools with our with our field vets. Well, you and I have stood on a stage together and, and delivered this. So, I mean, I think we've talked about our experiences of seeing the transformation we see in audience members. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, Emily? Because I, I think delivery is one thing, but their receptivity is something else. And I can speak a little bit from the, the student perspective too. So we partners with American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges. They're doing some, some really cool work. Julie Noyes is leading a team of focused on competency-based learning around spectrum of care. Sponsored by the Stanton Foundation, who are putting a lot of money into spectrum of care uh, at the AVMC, the Ohio State University. Yeah. yeah, they're doing some really cool work that will help, Peter, to your point. The, the pendulum swung I think in veterinary education, pretty strongly to advance level care. And there, there's certainly a, a movement to change that. It will take time. But healthcare team perspective, especially talking at, speaking at the AVMA conference and then the AHA conference, it was really interesting to talk to entire vet healthcare teams together. To some extent, the ASPCA Access to Care Conference too, although that was a group that was very interested already, right? So very self-selective group of people practicing across access to care. The other two were talking to vet healthcare teams. And one of them, Jules, maybe you can talk a little bit about the practice manager that was sitting, sitting in the front row and our, our interactions there. What I have found to be most successful, because in general, if, if you survey vet techs and veterinarians about what skill could they use most and what should they improve upon communications always rank really highly and yet as someone who's spoken at national conferences on communications boy those rooms are empty so it's recognized that some improvement could be made and yet it's not what attracts people in most of the time so we found great success by by putting it in with case-based conversations to say let's bring it all together. Spectrum of care is not practiced alone with communication. We're, we're marrying the communication that removes the judgment, communication from a pet family centered perspective with evidence-based medicine. And these are some cases that we're going to talk about so that it feels really practical and it feels like the stuff that you do every single day. That totally resonates with me, but I guess it would being a dean of a problem-based curriculum, <laughs> right. right? Because what I was going to tell you was, was that, yeah, of course, everybody under understands that communication skills is probably the least developed mm -hmm. in a business aspect. But what we don't do is connect it with business mm -hmm. or with the delivery of healthcare. And nobody's going to come in and learn a technique that they don't know how to use or where to use it. And un until you use an educational paradigm that allows them to understand the relationship of the skill that they're, that they're trying to learn and the way you're doing it makes it as important as a wet lab. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that is the key. But again, at the same time, don't expect a, a horde of people to come to that either mm -hmm. if veterinarians aren't going to allow vet techs or social workers in their clinics to talk to their clients. But the simple stuff that we're doing, we're doing the conversations we're having, we're literally 
exactly to your point, Phil, we're using this as a trope. We're using, not using spectrum care, but the, when we couch in spectrum care, because spectrum care is, is finding its moment again after yeah. just being how we used to practice. <laughs> now it's now it's called spectrum care. But I, I think we're, we're Trojan horsing in this, this communications and this team-based approach, right? So we've come down to even stuff like as a credential technician, as you're gathering signalment and history, are you just delivering the clinical information? Are you delivering all the other, the information they're delivering at the same time, which is, hey, I have three kids at home or, hey, my husband just lost their job or like these pieces of information in terms of how we deliver the, the treatment plan are almost as important in some ways as the clinical information, right? So I think even if we get to that point where we're not changing how they're interacting, but we're potentially changing the, the level of information they are providing. And I think I think there will be early adopters who see this as like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we wanted. And there'll be people who are interested in the conversation. And I think we, we're we drawing a line between all those things to try and make sure we're getting this out into the world, right? And, you know, it's just like, what was it, 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, when the uh, Economic Summit, Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, AVMA Economic Summit has just finished their 10th annual summit, right? But 10 years before that, veterinary businesses were in the doldrum, primarily because they didn't understand the business side of it. And the common complaint was veterinarians felt they couldn't raise their prices. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, some earlier doctors came in and all of a sudden people started feeling as if they were being left behind. And then the consumer began to think that we were only interested in money. I will never forget getting a phone call from a reporter once asking about our hospital, which, by the way, was purposely designed to be a generalist practice so that we could teach spectrum of care from the start. But he phrased the question by saying, aren't you only interested in money? I mean, why does it cost so much to get a dog vaccinated? I had been in, in the profession at least 30 years by then, and I had never heard that coming from a consumer before. This research that we did came out of a study that we did internally at Nationwide, which the, the upshot of it was that the expectations of pet families do not mesh with the gold standard of care that, that we learn in vet school. And um, a lot of in-person research, there's our innovation team at Nationwide who are awesome. One of the great things about being in a big organization is you get, you get some cool toys of like awesome teams that do awesome work. One of the foci was on pets with chronic conditions. And when they asked people how they felt about their interactions with their veterinarian, the closest analog they had was, was they felt like it was a used car sales lot, right? That they were being sold a bill of goods. So there wasn't necessarily a dialogue that it was just trying to sell goods and services. And I think most veterinarians would be horrified to think that that's the view that some of their customers, not all of their customers, but some of their customers have about them. And I think it goes back to the research we did with Mind Genomics. I only talked about the message that re resonated with all groups, which is that I want the best for my pet. The message that, that was lowest for all groups and the, the, the messages were really variable, pretty much except these two. The one that uh, resonated least and everybody hated the most was the most expensive option is, is offered to me first. Yeah, I don't want you to leave without, without addressing. If we get good at this, sure. How do we avoid information overload to our clients? You know, when I go to my doctor, I definitely want options, but mm -hmm. I also want his or her recommendation. Mm -hmm. I don't need him or her to quote their memory of my disease and to give me all the options. Just say, these are the top choices and this is what I recommend, right? But uh, there are a lot of people that are concerned about, first of all, we have a communication issue to begin with. Sometimes it is a language issue and not necessarily our ability to, inability to communicate. It's, it truly is a problem with language. But the other thing is, is that we have a problem where people aren't like my wife taking the car 
to the shop. And all she knows is the key turns it. And when they start telling her about the solenoid switch or whatever. Does she listen to this podcast, by the way? Yeah, she does. Okay. <laughs> and and this is a common complaint of her too. You I know, see. this this isn't a gender related issue. She just doesn't understand cars, you know, other than it gets her to where she wants to go. And there are people who come in who, that aren't necessarily who don't necessarily understand biology either, you know, and they truly do depend on you well, to make that recommendation. So let me jump in as a consultant business person, because this is where team-based healthcare is absolutely the solution. Because we as veterinarians routinely aren't the best communicators to an eighth grade or lower level, but our team needs to learn how to communicate. And it's all about telling stories. That's what I found, is the more that we can get stories that clients can relate to within their own pets that, that our staff members have had, clients are very appreciative of it. The other thing is by having the team involved with the communication, it's more than one person. And when they start to hear it from multiple people, the veterinarian is just part of the messaging uh, of the team. And if, if you read some of the human healthcare discussions on compassion and communication, they all reflect on utilizing collaborative care. And we in veterinary medicine have been reticent to use collaborative care even when working with specialists, it's always a single individual. And the more we can utilize our technical team, credentialed or not, managers, whomever, even our client service team. I mean, Jules and Emily both know one of my former receptionists who works for Nationwide now, who could talk better than I could to clients because she would listen to everything that I said. And so what a veterinarian needs to do is basically get to the point, talk about what the needs are, and then try to hand off some of this to some of the other members of the team to help communicate it. And I'm hoping that's what your research has shown. <laughs> that's exactly what I expect. I kind of thought that was the answer. I will tell you that my wife is a breast cancer survivor. And when it was diagnosed, the oncologist sat down with us and in five minutes said, you have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And these are the tests we're going to do to determine what type of breast cancer you have. And then he said, now I have to go and look at another patient. Then they sent us to another room where a nurse practitioner sat down with us for an hour and explained the types of breast cancer that it could have been, what the tests they were going to run was meant to do, and when they were going to contact us after they ran those tests. It was the most educational experience I've ever had in a personal way. Mm -hmm. Three days later, I asked my wife, we're supposed to be getting results tomorrow, right? And she said, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because everything that that nurse practitioner said just blew over her. Everything after breast be cancer. Yeah. Because all she heard yeah. was cancer. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Tincher is our expert in the principles of adult education. And, and the other area that comes into this is, it speaks exactly to your point, Phil, is, is clinical empathy. Yes. It's understanding when to share this information as much as how to share this information. Potentially even more basic than that. This sounds like that was a really critical role for you. And certainly in emergency cases, like that's another, yeah. another time where like sometimes the, the check-ins with people like it's now a good time <laughs> to talk about this more has I've gotten some crazy answers of like 
well, no, I'm on the way to a funeral right now. I'm like, well, I'm so glad I asked. Like, <laughs> like call me back later. <laughs> but the, at the root of that, and I think this is is something that I've learned best through my involvement with the Veterinary Leadership Institute that I'm now um, on the board of directors for, but have been involved with for a long time, that curiosity is the antidote to judgment. And it's also the best way to avoid conversations or experiences like that, like to just check in, whether it's the technical staff, whether it's a veterinarian, any, anyone can be curious. You can't be judgmental and curious, genuinely curious at the same time. At the same time, that's right. But that check-in of, back to your question of how do we avoid information overload? Everyone doesn't want to be communicated with in the same way. Some of the additional pieces of that, of our research showed some people are really motivated by evidence-based medicine. They want to hear about what are the odds? What can I tell you about what might happen? And other people, they don't really care about that, but they need, not want, need clinical empathy to Jules's point. Like they need us to tell them that they're doing the best for their pet, even if they're choosing the most basic care option available. And other people, they don't care about that either. <laughs> we just want to know like, what is the most convenient option that's going to save me time? I will pay extra for that. And so being curious is obviously there, there are many different ways to employ that with communication techniques, but I, if we can boil down all of the, like, how do you make sure it's not information overload? How do you make sure that you don't keep pressing forward with people when they need to take a, take a break, just be curious and ask. You know, we started this conversation with, access to care, spectrum of care, but really it all boils down to communication mm -hmm. at, at all levels, within the practice, between practices, it, at, the, at the university level, et cetera. So I, I think it's, it, and what is, what is a conversation but communication? So in many ways, what, we're, what we started with has come around full circle that we need to continue to have these conversations, to continue to communicate and we also can't forget that part of communication and part of conversations are listening. And so how do we help one of the other weaknesses in this profession, which is actually listening? Because we are so focused on an outcome that we don't always listen to what the answers are. Human healthcare, the average doctor interrupts their patient somewhere between 11 and 18 seconds. Now, we may be a little bit longer than that, but are we actually listening to the history? Not from research. Not. I think vet schools have done a really awesome job. We talk about open-ended questions and then listening in, in some of our BBMA topics. And I have noticed that now almost every vet school, that exact conversation and talking about open-ended questions and then listening is now incorporated in, in the curriculum almost everywhere, which I think is really cool. And I, I will say you interrupted Peter, but it's the only way to get a word in with him. So I think that's totally forgivable. <laughs> Love you, Jules. <laughs> <laughs> I've got your family jewels in a jar, but that's... <laughs> no, I, I think this, is, this has really been a conversation on conversations, hasn't it? Yeah, but I would also say that there's, a, there's been an undulating thread in, in our conversations, and that is the... The knitting together of the silos within within our profession, and, and I applaud you all for for not just looking at the team, but trying to communicate with 
the various organizations that represent the balkanized elements of our profession. That is the key to getting those conversations across those voids with the goal of a collaborative approach. Yeah. The, the territoriality is, is hard to overcome, but I think if you can be more, and this comes back to something that Peter said earlier around, like, I think outcomes is what we're focused on, but those, those mean different things to different people, right? And I think we, yeah. we have to align commercial outcomes with what's best for the pet family and for the pet, which it's not an easy task. But I, I did want to touch on the question you asked earlier, Phil, about how does an insurance company deal with this? And for us, it's product diversification. So we've, we've always had products that are different, different levels, whether that's the benefit schedule product, uh, whether it's the percentage of invoice products, those are those are different levels. I mean, they've already been a spectrum of care product nationwide for the last seven or eight years at least. Well, actually beyond that, we've got an accident and other things, but it's a new product coming out this year, which really is the goal is to meet pet parents where they are, to provide more care to more pets. And ultimately the, the onus is on us to communicate transparency around what these products do. So to your point around how do you provide products at a lower price range that meet the expectations of pet families? I don't think it's easy. We're going to continue to learn as we go along this path, but to be able to provide transparency, to be able to provide people with, you know, whether those are whether those are remote solutions, whether those are hybrid solutions, whether those are, you know, solutions to uh, to clinics that will best suit their needs. Like I think there are a range of options as we look at this. That it's going to be an exciting. I think the next three to five years is going to see some some real change in our in our space. So we're we're excited to be here. There was an undropped shoe in that question that essentially said, and how do we do that without creating absolutely the, human healthcare model? Yeah, yeah. the downside <laughs> healthcare model. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. As you guys know, I worked for Nationwide when it was veterinary pet insurance twenty years ago, and the barrier to the ultimate success of pet health insurance in the United States is not the consumer. Mm -hmm. It's the veterinary profession. So how do we start to turn the Titanic away from the iceberg if we can't get the veterinary profession to be an advocate for pet health insurance? Because neutral is like being negative when it comes down to it. And I spent many years within Nationwide trying to convince my colleagues that this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And we still have the same barriers even, and, and I will defer to, to Emily as the junior member of this coterie, of how much education do the veterinary students get about pet health insurance? Because again, if we're educating once they're out, they've been influenced by whom they work. We mm -hmm. need to influence them before they get out so we can have an, a, a piece of clay that can be molded. So that's to me the thing that, that I worry about is, is you guys can come up with a great product, but are we going to shoot it down? So I would say yes and. I mean, I only can speak to certainly the school experience, but I had a really good conversation with, a vet, with actually a practice manager at BHMA, one of the summits this year, came to me with like kind of, you know, your view of like, you know, hey, I think, you know, pet insurance is going to save our profession. It's going to help us do all the, the advanced surgeries and everything else. I'm like, okay, let me posit a bit of a different view. And I, and I kind of went down the, the road of spectrum of care and said, look, how about if there were diversity of products that would meet more of your clients where they were, elevate the level of practice across a much wider range of clients. And how do you feel about that? And he's like, I don't think I've ever been talked out of like the high end of pet insurance and felt better about it. Like, you know, I think practitioners and, and veterinary healthcare teams are ready to embrace differences in this. 10 years ago, if we talked about where you were there, probably Peter, at the 1-800-PET-MEDS conversation at NAVC, 
where our profession was vehemently opposed to anyone playing in the space around, around prescriptions. The inevitability has been that that has diversified the market and that now, you know, greater than 50% of medications are bought outside the vet clinic. There are things that will happen that are inevitable in our practice. And I think a greater level of, of pet protection products and pet insurance products is one of them. And I think our invitation has always been to the veterinary profession, help us understand, you know, where you guys want to be. And I think going back to, I think something you said earlier, Peter, that that stratification of our profession, we have one model at the moment almost, right? We have this, this one model of veterinary practice ownership where you're trying to serve everyone the same way, or at least trying to offer a level of service that, that satisfy as many people as possible in your practice. I think we have this opportunity to diversify our models. And I think that's what's most exciting to me going forwards. How do we create opportunities to build in transparent pet protection solutions at multiple different levels and at multiple you know parts of the pet health journey? So that's that's why I get out of bed in the morning most times. Sometimes I don't get out of bed in the morning and just just cry, but I think that's that's uh, that's the exception rather than the rule. Benefit of working from home is you can <laughs> briefly the um, education about pet insurance at a student level, Peter. It kind of goes full circle. Your initial question about how did we end up here at Nationwide? Some of the part that I left out is I was very involved with the Veterinary Business Management Association, student-run organization as a student, and that's when I got to know Nationwide. Nationwide has been. Uh, was a founding sponsor of the BBMA, and this uh, in very, very soon will be in our 20th year of sponsorship. And that means for 20 years, we've been educating, long before I was around, Dr. Karen McConnell previously mentioned, was visionary to say, yes, this organization should exist, and let, we're going to participate in the education of vet students. And I think that's contributed significantly in my opinion, certainly in my personal experience, to just demystifying and making it not seem like pet insurance is terrifying. We really, we talk to all of the vet schools in the U.S. every year, each semester, and just talking to them about what transparently, we try try and keep it as basic as possible so that it's understanding, just transparently talking to them sometimes, uh, not every time, but sometimes about what pet insurance is and how it, how it can help just pets receive, more pets receive more care. I think part of why we don't see as much, at least I would say the last several years, and I have not felt this way through my interactions as a student with Nationwide, that I don't find pet insurance to be threatening to most students. They're they're interested and we don't often get the question that you asked, Phil, about is pet insurance going to be exactly like human health insurance from younger generations? That tends to be something that we hear from vets that are older and have been out for longer. Maybe because our generation is much more familiar <laughs> with the side effects, if you will, in human medicine. And so I'm okay with the fact that you don't get it from the younger generation. The danger is still there, I think. It's just important that we are aware of the potential pitfalls <laughs> you know, that could occur. I agree with Peter. That's not our major obstacle right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a long way to go before we are even threatened by that. However, having said all that, you know, I wanted to say that I also can speak to the university setting, having just been a dean and still being on a faculty, and as well as having been a part of AAVMC for 30 years and a former president and knowing the evolution of this discussion of insurance from the time that mm -hmm. Nationwide's previous incarnage began. I've had plenty of, of discussions with 
Carol. I can still see her in her animated <laughs> way, but she has always been a student at. But Peter, I was surprised that you, while you were pushing for the training and the exposure uh, at the educational level, you forgot your reminder to us that they are still affected once they graduated, mm -hmm. once they graduate by our generation of veterinarians, mm -hmm. the people that they go to work for. And it's not all training. But as I said before, any change is going to be painful. Mm -hmm. And it's painful because of people who, who don't want to change just because it hurts too much to change. Uncomfortable. Yep. And it's uncomfortable. I believe that the last six to 10 years of graduates are fine with pet insurance. They're just getting to the point of ownership, though. And so it's going to take another five years before we see any more than a ripple of change uh, in the profession, because they're just getting to the decision-making position of, of these practices. The digital age is probably at the, are uh, probably buying practices now, yeah. you know, because they have been in vet school for about 10 years now. And they're the ones that will probably be the early adopters mm -hmm. to yeah. these new concepts. So the, the interesting thing is that you in, in Nationwide is, are giving the initial quote unquote vaccination on pet health insurance. Mm -hmm. But what we don't have is the anamnestic response by giving booster shots. And that is- Well, it takes challenge. time to, have to get a booster. But, but but I th I would disagree. But I mean I think I think and maybe as a profession we don't do a good job enough of, of maybe telling those stories because if, you know um, in in many clinics you know even if the penetration rate is you know three out of a hundred at the moment veterinarians every day every week are seeing insured pets now whether they know that or not and whether they're seeing the benefit of those and again we have great stats on increased visitation increased spending increased loyalty all those things whatever but from a purely interpersonal level and almost from a transactional level if they're having a better experience with insured clients they don't always know that so i, th I think there is an opportunity to push that booster and to provide them with better stories and i think that you know again to us the spectrum of care dialogue is a big part of that as well like how do we continue to have healthy conversations about how the profession grows um but but yeah i, I totally agree we, we we can we can do a better job with helping them understand how it's how it's benefiting their clients and the pets under their care and since you only waited about 14 seconds to interrupt me, that's where I was going with the next was conversation. That long? I don't know if it was that long because I wanted to ask <laughs> em, I wanted to ask Emily about the conversation on communication that you're having and what is the booster shot that you hope to do with that? Because if you're providing it to the VBMAs, which are going to be primarily first and second years and a smattering of third, it's by the time they get to that fourth year, they have got so much cerebral constipation from all of the information that they have had tube fed into them. How do we reinvigorate their immune system to understand the communication that needs to be to, to keep that booster shot going, to make that effective? Emily, before you answer that question, uh, before you step into the constipation conversation, here, <laughs> I want to say that and I, and I meant to say this before, the VBMA has been an extraordinarily positive attribute to the co-curricular activities of universities nationwide. And I disagree vehemently with what Peter just said in terms of by the time they graduate, they're inundated with other stuff and, they, and can't remember what they did. I think that the VBMA has had a critical impact, positive impact, 
on the business competencies of our graduates because universities didn't have the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And because of that bereft of education for a long time in universities, the improvement in the business environment is largely due to what happened to students through the VBMA. Well, and, my discussion, Phil, has nothing to do with the VBMA. I actually think they remember what they learned from the VBMA. Then you shouldn't be, then you, then you shouldn't be castigating them so hard. When you do I wasn't them. castigating the VBMA. I was castigating the education system and the university system. They learn more in application from the VBMA. The constipation has nothing to do with VBMA. It's had everything to do with tertiary care. They still have to learn how to be a veterinarian. This is when it's okay to interrupt them, Emily. Yes. <laughs> so, I was enjoying it a little bit too much. Too. So, Emily, going back to the original question, which is how do we get the anamnestic response in these new education and communication tools? Is there a plan going forward to continue the, the training? There is. And I, and I appreciate that, Phil. I think I, I've been enormously influenced and am here today only because of my involvement with the VBMA. Say that confidently. I don't remember everything that I learned in every lecture. <laughs> so I think it's, it's what we already have planned. So our, our research, we've had many requests at this point, having shared it at conferences. I've gotten multiple emails in the last few months of when and where is this published so that I can use it. We we do have plans to potentially publish, especially once we get a, a chance to put our tool, so our communications tool out into the world, pilot it with vet practices, see what vet healthcare teams have to say about it, what's helpful, what's not helpful, and put these communications help. And it's not going to be magical. You're not going to you know, the goal is to help identify which, which grouping pet families fall into. We're still going to have to do some work to communicate with them. It's just the goal is to be a shortcut and, and to help spark conversation about how can we be on the same side and, and on the same team with each other. And getting that tool out into practice's hands, the plan for that is the second half of 2023. And then we'll, we'll kind of see from there. But the plan is to continue talking about it and receiving feedback at, uh, we'll be speaking at both VMX and WBC about our spectrum of care work and specifically our communications research as well. By the way, Emily, as you know, I'm a huge advocate for the VBMA and I will actually be replacing you on the VBMA board next year <laughs> as their national you know advisor. That. I'm very grateful for your tenure in helping the VBMA over the many years. Are you sure that you guys don't want to go another round on Peter Hayden and VBMA? It was pretty entertaining. <laughs> I didn't think I had anything negative about VBMA in there at all. So no, you not. didn't. No, you, no, you didn't. It, you didn't. It was it was just a negatively phrased question of, about education in general. And He's I like, oh, yeah, well, that's a different yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Any anything you uh, would like to add as a rebuttal, Jules, since you've been sitting there quietly for a nanosecond? No, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed. Again, I, I want to point out that I've learned uh, an enormous amount from Emily throughout this whole journey on spectrum care. It's her who's driven like so much of this work. I mean, we we collaborated on getting the work done. Certainly a lot of the thought leadership comes from her. And I think just appreciative that as we rolled this out to our, our greater nationwide leadership team, the fervor with which they embrace this, I think as a, almost as a, not a new business, new business model, but a, almost a new visualization of how we continue to build success uh, for the for nationwide. 
uh, has been awesome. So it's it's great to see just that level of enthusiasm for what we believe is a really important uh, subject. Wow, I think you would hug Emily if you could, but you're on the different screen. It's true. So. But he just did. He just yeah, like, I think yeah. so too. Do we need to point this out as a, some kind of negative personality trait? I know people <laughs> that, that, you know, you, you're a little allergic to, to affection, you know? Actually, um, Emily, we're going to give you the last word. I appreciate that. And it's, I came to work at Nationwide to work with this vision that Jules and the leadership team at Nationwide have. How do we provide more care to more pets? How do we do that sustainably? I think the, the courageous conversation in animal health that I, I hope you all might explore in further episodes is, I think Jules, you said it perfectly earlier, like how do we align our commercial interests with how to do that, how to provide more care for more pets? Because that is the reality of the world that we live in. The business models are important. And if we're not measuring the right things right now, it's not average client transaction in a practice. What is it? How can we measure things differently so that we're all incentivized to to really help people by helping their pets. And Jules is being perhaps a bit modest. I've, it's been a great collaborative process between us and, and with our whole team as well to get to what we've we've done thus far with Spectrum of Care. And we have some big, exciting plans to just try and help more pets receive more care. Appreciate talking to you all as well. Emily, Jules, thank you for your time, for your insights. And uh, I would love to have you come back in, in a few months and maybe towards the end of the year with an update on some of the things that are going on and, and this continued discussion of spectrum of care and, and being able to take care of more pets and as a result, strengthen the human-animal bond at all demographic levels because it doesn't matter what your income is. It's all about that relationship between you and your four-legged, two-footed, winged, slithering, whatever it is that you may have that, that's part of your family. So thank you very much. I want you back to go into something different because we have a number of important issues that's mm -hmm. facing our profession. We were only, only able to address one critical one here. Peter and I both appreciate the support you've provided us, but thank you to the two of you for your professionalism and for your commitment to improving this profession. It will take time. And I admire your patience. We you assume it's going to be fixed by next year, Phil. I don't know what this patience thing is. We don't have any yeah. patience. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. In that case, I, I, I withdraw everything I just said. No. <laughs> we, we appreciate the, the leadership from the two of you and, the, and, and having courageous conversations. Throughout the year, you know, the four of us have managed to get together and see each other. And, and uh, I think speaking for, for Emily as well, we, we really do enjoy uh, any chance we get to chat with you both. Same here. Thank you. Well, thanks again. Thanks to you. Thanks to Nationwide. Phil, we'll catch up with you real soon. And yep. uh, to all our listeners, visit us at www.peterandphil.com in case you missed any episodes. And please feel free to share this podcast with others because we really would like to see about influencing a greater good in the veterinary profession and in the world. So thanks very much, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.